Shalom Aleichem, everyone. Uh, it's good to be back. I hope everyone had a nice uh, holiday season. Everyone should have a healthy winter. And uh, looking forward to starting up again. So let's start from the, the Gemara. We're going to take a little further today and uh, try to wrap up all the topics that we discussed up until now, the different concepts of Osik B'Mitzvah, B'Hatamina Mitzvah, one who's involved in a mitzvah is exempt from performing other ones, how that's manifest in Halacha, and, uh, you know, wrap things up, and then we'll move on next week. So let's review the Gemara a little bit. Yes, the Gemara, Menani, Mili, how do we know that a Shliach Mitzvah, a messenger, someone who's performing a mitzvah right now, is exempt from other mitzvahs? Tatana Rabbanana was taught in a b'raisa, b'shiftecha while you're sitting in your house, you're only obligated to talk to your children and learning, to talk about mitzvahs, prat la'osik b'mitzvah. That's only when it's b'shiftecha v'esecha, when you're talking, when you're sitting in your house. But if you're osik b'mitzvah, you're exempt. Uvelechtecha v'derech, so why does the Torah say a second time, while you're walking on your ways? Prat la'chosan, it comes to exclude a different case, a different manifestation of osik b'mitzvah v'atamina mitzvah, that's of chosan, and we saw there was a dispute in the Rishonim what that meant. According to Rashi, it meant a person who's involved mentally as opposed to physically. And according to the Ritva, it meant a person who's preparing for a mitzvah as opposed to a person who's actually in the performance of a mitzvah. So says the Gemara further, Mikan Amru, based off of this, we could say, Hakonis is a person who's marrying a virgin, Pater, he's exempt from saying Krishma, the Esalmana, Chayev. Yet when a person marries a widow, a person who's already had intimate relations, there he's going to be obligated still to say Kriyashma. My mashma, what's the implications from our previous discussion that allow us to make this conclusion, that there's a distinction between the exemption between a virgin and a person who already had intimate relations? Amaravuna Kederach. Ravuna wants to say it's based like a derech, ma derech rishus, just the same way that a derech is rishus, right? Valechtechava derech. That was talking about something which was done on your own volition. Av kol rishus, so too anything which is rishus, lafuke haide be mitzvah asik. It's coming to exclude here where a person's involved in a mitzvah. So yes, the Gemara Milo askina de kazla devar mitzvah, kama rechman alikre. So is, if not, we're discussing, is the Pasuk not referring to a, a circumstance where he's walking to do a mitzvah? Nonetheless, the Torah says to read Kriyashma. says the Gemara, it's not. Im Kain. If that was the case, where he's walking to do, do a Dvar mitzvah, and, the, and nonetheless he has to say Kriyashma, the Pasuk should say something differently. Lema the Torah really should say, B'Sheves Uvaleches. While you're sitting, or while you're walking, my Why does the Torah change the language and express it stressing that it's you're sitting or you're walking? Specifically, when you're doing something on your own volition, that's when the Torah obligated you. But while you're involved in a mitzvah, therefore, patiros, you're exempt, and that's why. The Gemara, at first glance, wants to say that a person who marries a virgin exempt from Kriyashma, whereas when you marry an Amana, a widow, a person who's already consummated a marriage, then you're exempt. Yes, the Gemara, Yachia, Filukonis, Amana, Nami. Says the Gemara, that makes no sense. When you're marrying an Amana, you're also performing a mitzvah. When you're marrying a person who already had intimate relations, you're still performing a mitzvah. So how come the person who marries an Amana 
also isn't exempt from Kriyashma. Answers the Gemara with this precedent. Hakones esabesula torid. A person who marries a virgin, there, that person specifically is torid. He is overcome. He's one that, that's worried about what's going to be. Konis elo torid. But if a person who marries an amada, a widow, who already had intimate relations, they're not going to be worried. What this worry is, we're going to see soon. Um, but that's the Gemara's distinction, that this concept of tirda, right, of being overcome, of being distraught, of worried about something, only exists by a besula, only exists by when you marry a virgin, but doesn't exist when you marry an amana. Says the Gemara, Yes, if that's true, anytime there's a tirda, you're going to be exempt from mitzvos. If that's true, If a person is a merchant, and his boat sinks at sea, and he loses all his merchandise. So now we're going to say that he's exempt from all of mitzvos. And if you want to say, yeah, he's actually going to be exempt from performing other mitzvos. If Abba Barzavda said, Amirav, in the name of Rav, an avil, a person who's in mourning, he's obligated to perform all the mitzvos in the Torah, except for the mitzvah of Tefillin. Since it says there is a specific allowance, because it says peer, splendor, and a person who is in mourning can't be expressed splendor. But in regards to all of the mitzvahs, he's still obligated. And that's true, even though a person who is in mourning is tarred, he's distressed. So answers the Gemara, obviously it's not that any time a person's tarred, he's in distress, so therefore he's going to be exempt from mitzvahs, in our case, where a man, a groom, is marrying a virgin, so then he's tarred tirda de mitzvah. Then he's disturbed, he's distressed about uh, something in the performance of a mitzvah. But hasam, in regards to an avil in mourning, or when a person's boat sinks, <coughs> there he's tarred tirda de rishos. And there his distress is optional, and therefore, that doesn't exempt him from mitzvahs. Now, in regards to mourning, when it's optional, we're going to discuss more when we get to the Gemara on Chafhei Yamad Beis, on 25b. But for now, we're going to assume that's true in the Gemara. Now, before we get to seeing the Rashi in the Gemara, I'd like to first discuss what's unique about the marriage of uh, a man to a virgin, as opposed to a man to a widow, that specifically when he marries a virgin, he's going to have exemption from St. Krishma, whereas when he marries a widow, he's not going to warrant that exemption. So I brought to you on the source sheet um, an excerpt from the Bartonora. The Bartonora is probably the most fundamental commentary that we have nowadays on the Mishnah. And he says two explanations. I brought you one of them. The second one, the Sheet and Bikumbetis brings later on that we'll see soon. Um, but let's see how the Baranora explains this exemption, which is unique to a virgin. So it says the Baranora, Shanasa Basula, a groom who marries a virgin, Pater mi Kriyashma Laila Rishona. He's exempt from saying Kriyashma the first night. Mishum de Tarid, Shemeloyim Tsaena Basula. He's disturbed, he's distressed, maybe when he consummates the marriage, he's going to find that she's not a virgin. And since he's upset, he's nervous, he might, might not find her a virgin. So therefore, he's, he specifically is the one who's able, we give him a time to calm himself down and to build up the confidence and the courage to consummate the marriage. 
And during that time period, he's exempt from Kriyashma. Whereas if we're talking about Namana, a widow, so inasmuch as the Chassan knows that uh, she's not a virgin, so therefore, there's no reason for him to be tar, there's no reason for him to be distraught. And continues the Baranor of it, de Demitzvahi. And this concern, this building up the courage to determine whether or not she is a virgin, that's tier to the mitzvah. That's already considered the distress in regards to a mitzvah. And the Torah said, He quotes our Gemara, that when you're going on your ways, specifically when you're going and you're doing things on your own volition, that's when the Torah obligated you in mitzvahs. Had a mitzvah, but if you're involved already in a mitzvah, patiras, the Torah didn't obligate you, you're exempt. So according to the Bartanora, the reason, this is as also true, this is explicit in the Rambam, the reason why a person who's marrying a virgin is exempt from mitzvahs is because he has to build up the courage to, to consummate the marriage, because he might find out that his wife, who he married with the assumption that she's a virgin, might not be. And if she's not, that'll go ahead and nullify and make void the marriage that just took place. So it's actually quite a... Uh, it could be a scary situation. Now there's a question to ask here, and we, we brought it, the Shittimu Kubetzis asked this question in Ksubus on Dafvav. So, so it says the Shittimu Kubetzis, in regards to this answer that the Bartanor just gave us, that maybe the concern is Shemelayim Tzenebesula, you might not find that she's not a virgin. It says the Shittimu Yeshlomar Dihachi, if that's true, that's our concern, that she might not be a virgin, Claims the Shita Mekubetzis, the Shita was the end of the Rishonim. He was actually taught the, uh, the Arizal. The Arizal is the famous Kabbalist. He taught him Torah in regards to the revealed aspects of Torah. So he, was, uh, he compiled a lot of different opinions in the Rishonim and added his own commentary to them. So he's a, a, a commentary from the end of the Rishonim. So he says, If that's true, that the reason is because you might find that she's not a virgin... In kantir de mitzvah, that's not qualify as a tir de mitzvah to exempt you. Why not? He says that was fairly the rabbi Abai, rabbi Abai claim that's really relevant to the Gemara in Ksubas to mishum tir de mitzvah patrinan that you only have an exemption when you're involved in a tir de mitzvah. Ubilvad shloyasekrus shivcha ikat tir de mitzvah. Says the shita mekubetzas. When do we have it? When does it qualify that specifically when you'll, you'll have a, uh, a tirda which can tantamount to be a tirda de mitzvah? So he says it's only when the chassan is afraid, the groom's afraid, that through consummating the marriage, since she's a virgin, and therefore she still has a membrane in the opening of her vaginal canal. So therefore, specifically under those circumstances, there's a tirda de mitzvah. But the concern that she, maybe she's not a virgin claims the shita that there's no mitzvah in being nervous that she's not a virgin. Why not? If you find that she's not a virgin and therefore it makes her ineligible to marry, it makes the, ma- the marriage null and void. So you can always get married to a different lady. So even though in regards to the fact, his emotional sentiment that he wanted to marry the specific lady, there's a, you know, unfortunately he's not going to be able to marry her if she's not a virgin. 
That's not relevant to the mitzvah of pru or revu, right? Being fruitful and multiplying. Because in regards to the mitzvah of pru or revu, he's able to marry someone else and fulfill the mitzvah just as equally. So the concern says the Shita Mekubetzes, that she maybe she's not a virgin, and therefore you can't stay married, is not called the tier to the mitzvah. And therefore, if it's not a tier to the mitzvah, explains the Shita, that that wouldn't be a reason then to exempt a person from actually going ahead and getting... Uh, Getting an exemption. So if that's true, we have to go ahead and answer up for this opinion of the Rambam and Ravadia Mibar So explains the Shita Mekubetza. So how could we explain that stance that maybe she's not a Basula also qualifies as Tirda de Mitzvah? Says the Shita Vyeshli Lomar, we could say that Tirdaso Hainu, his concern is Shemeloyim Sena Basula. Maybe he's not going to find her to be a virgin. And maybe the reason he found her not to be a virgin is because he actually consummated the marriage in a funny way. When he consummated the marriage, he entered the lady, he entered his wife on an angle. And that's why he didn't feel the membrane at the entrance to her vaginal canal. And therefore, it will be found out that he actually claims that this lady is not a virgin, even though she really is. So if we're going to sum up what the Shita Mekubetza says, the Shita Mekubetza says, why is it that a person specifically who marries a virgin is going to be exempt? If you tell me it's because maybe he won't find her a virgin, that's not Tirda de Mitzvah. Because inasmuch as he can marry someone else and fulfill Pruravu, so who cares if this one's a virgin or not? At the end of the day, he can end up married. So the only time, says the Shita, that we're going to have Tirda de Mitzvah, if he's concerned for his physical welfare, that during the consummation of the marriage, while he breaks the membrane, that's going to cause him physical damage. If that's true, how do we understand the stance of the Bartanura and the Rambam that say that the reason why he's exempt is because maybe he won't find that she's a virgin? Says the, the Shita, it must be that maybe... He's going to make a mistake. He's not going to consummate the marriage properly and therefore make a claim against her that really she wasn't a virgin even though she was. So this, this Shita Mikubetsis is very, very challenging. It's very difficult to understand. What was the Shita Mikubetsis' original question? He asks, how come maybe she's not a virgin is considered to the mitzvah? Why? Because you can always fulfill Pafuravu with someone else. Meaning to say that this lady is not necessary for the mitzvah of Puravu. Now, how does he want to answer? He wants to, he says that maybe it's considered tirda de mitzvah because it'll end up in the end of the day he's going to say that she wasn't a virgin even though she really was. Now, what does that have to do with tirda de mitzvah? Even if he goes ahead and makes a claim that she wasn't a virgin even though she was, that has nothing to do with the mitzvah of Puravu. He can fulfill Puravu the same exact way that he did, or that he would do with her, with another lady. So what did he benefit? What did he gain? His original understanding was that maybe he's going to make a claim that she, maybe she won't be a virgin and he'll have to marry someone else. And his answer is, maybe he'll make a wrongful claim and have to marry someone else. Who cares? At the end of the day, that has nothing to do with the mitzvah of Puravu. So what did he benefit? So I think the answer is as follows that he told us already that if it came to the man being concerned that maybe he's going to be physically damaged during the consummation of the marriage, 
That qualifies as tira de mitzvah. Now, why is that? I would assume because his concern is in regards to his actual performance of the mitzvah. While he's consummating the marriage, he's performing the pruravu. So there, he's concerned about how that's going to take effect. How is that going to take place? And since he's concerned about his performance of the mitzvah, therefore, that's what makes it qualify as tir to the mitzvah. So if you make a precise reading in his answer, so the shita says that maybe you'll find that she's not a virgin. And maybe the concern is that he entered her on a funny angle, and that's why he didn't experience, he didn't feel that membrane. And then he continues, and then he'll make a claim that she really wasn't a virgin, when she was. But here, the concern maybe is that maybe it was his mistake in how he consummated the marriage. And since his concern is still in regards to the actual performance of the mitzvah, that's what allows us to qualify this as tirda de mitzvah. So according to the Shita Mikobetzes, what's the tirda that Shem Eliyim Basula? He's nervous that maybe he's going to make a mistake while consummating the marriage. He's not going to do the action properly. And therefore, he'll think that she wasn't a virgin, even though that she wasn't. But at the end of the day, the principle that we're deriving from here is that in order to have a tirda, the tirda has to be in the actual performance of the mitzvah itself. It can't just be that you're nervous about outcomes, or you're nervous about what could be. That doesn't qualify as tirda to mitzvah. It has to be that your thought process, that your mind, your distress is focused on the actual performance of the mitzvah. So that's what the distinction is when it comes to a chasen um, uh, that's marrying a groom who's marrying a besula, a virgin, as opposed to an amana, a widow. That would be that distinction. Now, I want to read a few Rashis here, now that we cover that. And I want to read a few Rashis and try to bring out this principle that we've discussed already. Right? In Rashi, let's just make a review. In Rashi, we wanted to propose that Rashi understood that the basis of learning out two different exemptions for Osik mitzvah Patamina Mitzvah wasn't based off the context of the Psukim, because if it was based off the context of the Psukim, the Torah said it in the wrong order, it should say, But since the Torah said, that revealed to Rashi that it wasn't taking the context of the verses specifically, Rather, what Rashi focused on was the redundancy, the fact that the Torah expressed it twice. That's what Rashi focused on. And therefore, with our own logic, we could determine what those two psukim were coming to include. Now let's go back and revisit Rashi, the first Rashi. Rashi says, He's not obligated in Kriyashma. And says Rashi, and later on, we're going to explain what's the implication. So the first question I want to ask is, why does Rashi say that? Why does Rashi feel the need to add? Later on, we're going to explain what's the implication. Why not explain what the implication is right now? What's Rashi waiting for? Now, the next question I want to ask is, in the next Rashi, so Rashi goes on and at length to explain what exactly are all the different drushos and where are they coming from? Right? And he says, even though we had his tard and mitzvah, we still need two psukim because it just said one, and etc. He speaks at length what the implications are. Why did Rashi wait till there? So what I want to claim is that this is the proof. This is the biggest proof to what we're saying. 
that if the basis was the context of the psukim, so then Rashi has to explain right away, based off to after we bring the first pasuk, why exactly does this warrant an, ex- an exemption from mitzvahs? But inasmuch as we're not basing it off the context of the psukim, we're only basing it off the redundancy, so Rashi can only explain to us the logic behind the two different exemptions once he's gone ahead and brought the second pasuk. So after Rashi brings the first pasuk, he says, Hold on, hold your horses. We're going to bring a second pasuk, and based off the redundancy, we're going to tell you what the implication is. And that's why Rashi has to wait until he brings the second verse of to actually explain to you why these two psukim work in tandem to create an exemption under two different types of circumstances. Now I want to bring another proof to that. In the next Rashi, Rashi says, My mashma, what's the implication? Explains Rashi, Mehani kroi prat lemitzvah. So if your person knows Aramaic well, he'll know that Mehani kroi means from these verses, in the plural, right, that come to explain the mitzvah. So now I want to ask a question here. Why does Rashi stress the fact in plural? Why does Rashi stress it in plural? Really, Beshif Techavisecha tells us an exemption for Osik Bemitzvah, and Avalech Techavaderech tells an exemption for Chasan. So, why does Rashi have to stress the plural? Again, it's this the principle that the two verses are working in tandem, they're working together. And the whole drasha, the whole the way that the Gemara is able to expound them, is based off the fact that we have two a redundancy here, that we have two psukim. So, Rashi has to stress, Mehani Krai, in the plural, these, these, these verses in order to, again, reveal to us that this principle that we're basing it based off the redundancy, the verses, the expounding here of the Gemara is based off the redundancy and not based off the actual context of the verses. Now, according to us, the way we explained it, Rashi, is that uh, the redundancy is we have two different psukim, two different verses, which are limiting and qualifying the obligation to perform mitzvahs when you're involved in activities of your own volition. That's coming from Beshif Techa, right? From your sitting, Velech Techa, from your walking. Whereas, if you're involved in walking not of your own volition, or sitting not of your own volition, you're doing it because the Torah mandated to do so. Therefore, you would be exempt. The Torah didn't obligate under those circumstances. I want to see Rashi now, Divramaskal Milo Askinan, and I want to try to prove that as well. Says Rashi, Aren't we able to couple within the verse also when a person's involved, he's on a path to do a mitzvah as well as on a path to do something his own volition? We have a different verse that says derech without saying without qualifying that it's specifically on things of your own volition. And therefore, derech mitzvah it implies that even when it's a derech mitzvah, so then you're going to be obligated. The Torah says you have to go ahead and do mitzvahs. Comes along the Gemara and says, in Cain, if that's true, so then the Torah would have to be written differently. In our Pasuk, our Pasuk of Kriyashma, it would have to say, And inasmuch as the Torah didn't say that, it says, that's what's revealing to us that there's a limitation that you're only obligated on things of your own volition. So it's clear from the way that Rashi understood the question of the Gemara, Milo Askinan, 
where he stressed that the fact that we have another verse that tells us without qualifying actions on your own volition, that that's when you're obligated. So therefore, we would have thought it applies under all circumstances, the obligations, even when you're doing a, a derech mitzvah. Answers the Gemara, no. The fact that specifically in the Pasuk of Kriyashma, it says, Beshif techa, and stresses it's your volition, Velech techa, your volition, that's what's going ahead and revealing to us that an osik b'mitzvah is actually exempt. So therefore, we see another instance in Rashi which supports and buttresses our principle that we wanted to establish that Rashi is not basing his understanding of the exemption of the Gemara based off the context of the Psukim, like we saw in Tosos and the Ritva. Rather, it's purely based off the redundancy. And now we found four different examples in Rashi where that's, we see that being manifest in his actual commentary. It's not, it's not explicit, but based off of the way that Rashi chooses to express himself is very, very clearly understood our principle that we wanted to establish. Now, let's go back to last year. We had a discussion between the, about the Iran and Tosvos. We had a discussion whether or not if a person is able to fulfill both mitzvos, um, is he obligated in both mitzvos still? Or even under that circumstance, he still has an exemption. We brought the stance of the Iran, that the Iran held that even if a person is able to fulfill both mitzvos, nonetheless, he still gets an exemption from the second. Whereas according to this Tosos' opinion, Tosos held that if a person is able to fulfill both mitzvos, he's still obligated in both of them. And the only time a person gets an exemption is if he's only able to fulfill one of the two mitzvahs. So now I want to say, I want to try to prove Rashi's stance in this machlokas, in this disagreement. So Rashi, in Divra Maskel Torid, when he's discussing the distress of a groom before he gets married, says, Libo Torid His heart is distressed with preparation, the mental preparation for consummating his marriage. Umistabra, and it's logical, kipatrikra, when the Torah exempted him from other mitzvos, mishum tirda patre, because they exempted him because of his mental distress, the eno yachalasok bishnaim keechad, and he can't perform both mitzvos as once. Now, I want to focus here on this last st- segment, that he's not able to focus on both mitzvos at once. Eno yachalasok bishnaim keechad. Now, according to Tosvos, Right, Tosis was of the opinion that a person only gets an exemption if he's unable to perform both mitzvos. So we asked, if he's unable to perform both mitzvos, how could it be then that a groom, a chassan, is exempt from saying Krishma? At the end of the day, he's able to stop his mental preparation for consummating the marriage, say Krishma, it'll take him 10 seconds, maybe half a minute, and then he'll go back to his mental preparation, and he's able to perform both. And yet the Gemara says explicitly that he's exempt from saying Kriyashma. So we propose, based off the Me'iri, that according to Tosvos, able to perform both of them means he's able to perform both of them simultaneously. But if he has to delay the performance of one mitzvah and the preparation of one mitzvah in order to be involved in the second, so that already qualifies as an impossibility to perform both of them. At, to perform both of them, and that's why he would want an exemption. So, according to this Rashi, Rashi says that a person has an exemption because he's not able to be involved in both of them at the same time. That very much sounds like Tosfos, because Tosfos is the only one who necessitates 
in order to get an exemption, the ability to do them simultaneously. If you could do two mitzvahs simultaneously, then you're obligated in both. And if you can't do them simultaneously, you're an exemption from the second. Whereas according to the Ran, the Ran didn't care about whether you could do them simultaneously. The Ran only cared about it. At the end of the day, are both of them going to get done? So this Rashi would only make sense if he shared the opinion of Tosfos, that you only want an exemption when it's Ef Shalakayim Shneim, you're unable to do both of them at the same time. Now based off of that, the next uh, different Rashi becomes very, very clear. Rashi says, in Divra Maskal Chasen Tarid Tirda de Mitzvah, that a groom is involved in a mental distress that is, invo- uh, that is mitzvah-based, it says Rashi, Va'ashmo'inan Kra, and the verse, right, according to Rashi of Olechtech Avaderech, teaches us, He doesn't have to stop thinking about the first mitzvah, for the second one that's now coming to him. Rather, he should just focus on the first one, and he should have in mind to make sure that he's going to consummate the marriage properly. But the focus here, guys, is that what's he stressing? He's stressing you don't have to stop doing one preparation in order to go to a second. So again, that's very, very clear, like we just said, that he's assuming, like Tosfos, that the qualification is that a person's not obligated to stop one mitzvah to perform another. If he can do them simultaneously, so do them simultaneously. But to stop the performance of one to do another... That already gives you an exemption of osik be mitzvah patamina mitzvah, and therefore it's clear that Rashi is learning like Tosfos. So now that we've clarified the opinions of Tosfos and the Ran, and now Rashi that he takes sides with Tosfos, um, what I want to do is I want to see what's the halacha, the practical halacha, what's coming out from here. Right, we're going to have a question, two mitzvahs, what to do. We have to know, we, we care, can we do both of them at the end of the day? We don't care about that, we can do them simultaneously. So let's see what the halacha is, and try to know the practically how this is going to be manifest in our lives. So the Shulchan Aruch in Hilchah Sukkah, in Simen Tafresh Mem, in Siv Zayin says, Shluchei mitzvah p'tuin mina sukkah, a person who is performing a mitzvah, on his path to performing a mitzvah is exempt from sleeping in a sukkah, bein bayom or bein balayla, whether it's daytime or nighttime. So comes along the Mishnah Brura. The Mishnah Brura is probably the most primary commentary nowadays for the practical application of halacha. It was written by Rav Yisrael Meir HaKohen, who was a Rosh Yeshiva in a town called Radin in uh, in Lita in Lithuania. And he lived in the early 1900s and passed away in the, I, was, I think, in the 1930s, if not the 1920s. Um, so he wrote this commentary, and he says, Even when they're encamped, And there's a built sukkah already in front of them. So according to the Mishnah Brura, the Shulchan Aruch now is giving you an exemption from sleeping in a sukkah, even though when you camp out at night, there's a pre-prepared sukkah staying there. Now like this. Why would it be that you're exempt from sleeping in a sukkah if a sukkah is already built? So if you would tell me that the Shulchan Aruch shares the opinion of Tosfos, that you have an exemption 
from, you only have an exemption when it's EF Shalakayim Shnaim. You can't do both of them. And that means you can't do both of them simultaneously, both mitzvahs simultaneously. So I wouldn't understand this Mishnah Bura. Why not? Because let's say a person's traveling to redeem captives. And now he's going to encamp for the night. So he has two places he can camp out. He can camp out in a tent, or he can camp out in a sukkah. Now the tent's already built, and the sukkah's already built. So it takes absolutely no more effort to camp out, camp out in the tent than it does to camp out in the sukkah. And nonetheless, explains the Mishnah Bura, he doesn't have to sleep in the sukkah. Why not? He can do both of them simultaneously. But if you were to tell me that the Shulchan Aruch assumes like the Ran, that even if you can fulfill both of them at the end of the day, inasmuch as right now I'm involved in the first mitzvah, I'm exempt from the second, therefore I could very well understand why even if a sukkah is built in front of you, nonetheless you wouldn't have to sleep in it. So this Mishnah Brura seems very, very clear to me. The fact that you have an exemption from sleeping in a sukkah, even though it's already built while you're on course to fulfill a different mitzvah, very much shows me that the Shulchan Aruch goes like the Ran, that you have an exemption even when you can fulfill both mitzvahs. Now, now the Ramah here, in the end, in the brackets of this source, says, says, he says, see earlier in Simen Amelches. Simen Amelches is talking about the case of the salesman of Tefillin that we talked about previously. And there, that a person who's selling Tefillin has an exemption under certain circumstances. So says the Mishnah Brura in Sifkat Namelches in regards to this Ramah, who sources this previous halacha. He says, The Ramah means to say that in that simon, in the eighth sif, in this eighth paragraph, in the Ramah there, the Ramah is the commentary, the Ashkenazi commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. Um, so there he says, It's clear from over there, You only have an exemption when you have to work to build a sukkah. But if he doesn't have to work to do it, Like there's already a pre-built sukkah in front of him. He has to enter the sukkah and eat and sleep there. But if, circumstantially, he's not going to be able to sleep as well in the sukkah as he would outside of the sukkah, and tomorrow he's going to be tired, and he won't fulfill the mitzvah that he originally set out to do to properly, then and then he has an exemption. So here, it seems very clear from the Ramah, from this Mishnah Bura, that the way he understands the Ramah is that if you have a sukkah in front of you, and all things being equal, you're going to be able to sleep and to perform the mitzvah just as well tomorrow you would be if you slept in the sukkah or if you didn't sleep in the sukkah, then you're obligated to sleep in the sukkah. So at first glance, that's not like the Ran. The Ran would tell you you're exempt. You're in the middle of performing a mitzvah. Even if you could do both of them at the end of the day, we don't care. We'll give you an exemption for the second. So it seems very clear that the, the Mishnah Brura understands the Ramah like Tosfos will start out. That just like Tosfos, if you can do both mitzvahs simultaneously, there's no problem. So you're obligated to do so. and You don't get an exemption. That's why I would think at first glance, if we were just to look in Hilcha Sukkah in Simen Tav The problem is as follows. Comes along the Shulchan Aruch in Simen Amelches, and let's see it inside. 
A person who writes tefillin and mezuzos, heim v'tagreim, the writers themselves and the people who sell it, v'tagrei tagreim, and even the resellers, the kola uskim b'melech shamayim, and anyone who's involved in heavy work, the Gemara says that means people who sell tcheles, there, the pater mehanachas tefillin kol hayom, they're exempt from putting on tefillin the entire day, zulas b'shas kriyashma tefillah, except for the time of kriyashma and davening, Vaga says the Ramah, this is the Ramah that the Mishnah just discussed. Now what happens if they had to do the work during the time of Kriyashma and Davening? Nonetheless, they're going to be exempt from Kriyashma Tvila Tvilin. Meaning the Ramah is qualifying that the Shulchan Aruch who said they're obligated to put on Tvilin for Kriyashma and Tvila that was only if they didn't have to work then. But if they have to work then, says the Ramah, then they're also exempt. Why? Because anyone involved currently in a mitzvah is exempt from a second mitzvah. If he has to put effort in in performing the other mitzvah. But if he could do both mitzvahs at the same time without effort, then he has to do both. Now comes along, and this is going to be our difficulty, the Ramah quotes his source. The Ramah quotes his source, and what's his source? Hagosa Shri B'Shem Zarua. One is uh, the footnotes on the Rush, the Rush, the commentary, the commentary on the, on the Gemara. So there, the footnotes on the Rush quote a safer, a different Rishon called the Zarua. But more importantly, Viran Perakayashan. He's quoting the Ran here in the second parak of Sukkah. So that means that the Ramah is saying that if you're able to do both of them without effort, then you have to do both of them. Then he's sourcing in the Ran. So this Ramah, which the Ramah himself quotes earlier on in Hilchah Sukkah, that the Mishabur explains that you have to do both of them, the Sukkah is built in front of you already, is actually the stance of the Ran. So how does that work? If the Rand says, you're exempt from the second mitzvah whenever you're involved in the first mitzvah, irrelevant if you could do both of them, so how come he obligates you to do both of them according to this Ramah? So this question is very troublesome, but before we come to address it, it's very, very clear though that both the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah are taking the stance of the Ran, that when a person's able to do both mitzvahs at the end of the day, it seems like you're exempt from the second one. Now, the Ramah seems to be adding a caveat to that. We're going to get to in a second, but it's very clear that they're both taking the stance of the Ran. Now, what's this caveat? So I brought for you here a Bir Halacha. The Bir Halacha is a more in-depth commentary of the Mishnah Brura that the Mishnah Brura himself wrote, that Rizal Meir Cohen wrote. Um, and he here comes ahead to try to define what this caveat is. So he says that as follows, Umasha Kasav that which the Ramah wrote, that if he's able to do both of them, below Torah, without any extra effort, wrote Salomar, that when a person doesn't have to add any extra effort whatsoever to perform the second mitzvah, and rather he just has to put in one effort, and through this one effort he's fulfilling both of them, and while he's performing the first mitzvah, in its normative fashion, he's able to actually fulfill both mitzvahs. Then certainly he should see 
make sure that he fulfills both of them. Why he quotes a Pasuk now in Mishlei, that to be good isn't a bad thing. And that's what the Ran writes over there. Meaning to say, the caveat is as follows, that according to the Ran, for sure you're exempt from the second mitzvah if you're performing the first one. But when is that true? When there's any extra effort necessary to perform the second one. But if you can perform the second mitzvah and you're, doing, you're going through the course of you know, performance of the first mitzvah in the same exact fashion, you're going to sleep anyway. And now there's two places you can go to bed. One of them is in a silk and one's in a tent. It's no extra effort. Then even the Ran would agree that you have to go ahead and sleep like that. So now what I want to do is to try to understand the fact that the Ran says this, that you, you should go ahead when it's no extra effort to fulfill the second one. Is that just a Midas Chasidus? Is that a good thing to do? It's a, you know, it's a nice thing. You could get another mitzvah to so do the other mitzvah. Or is it an actual obligation? Are you mandate, is it mandatory for you to do that? So I want to go, for, before, in order to go ahead and address that, I want to first see this run, this segment of the run, which discusses it inside. Um, it's source five on the source sheet in the halachic part. And from there, we're going to try to determine whether it's an obligation or not. So says the ran, But I certainly admit, Anyone who doesn't have to put in any extra effort. And he goes and fulfills the mitzvah, the first mitzvah, in his normal fashion. Then he can fulfill both mitzvahs. He certainly should fulfill both of them. And he quotes this pasuk, this verse, from Mishlei, and to do a good thing is not called bad. Right? We're going to skip now a little bit. And the second to the last line, he says, But if you have to put any extra effort in, then you're exempt. And because of that, The Gemara on Chafayam Advez on 25b that says, there were certain Rabbanim who were Shluchei Mitzvah. Havuganu Chutzasukah. They slept on uh, the riverbank outside of a sukkah. Tekoz Manchlichus and Eskin B'Mitzvah Mikru. Because the whole time they're involved in the first mitzvah, they're still called Shlichei Mitzvah. Lechayev and the Kaimim Mitzvah Sukkah. And during that time period, they weren't obligated to fill the mitzvah sukkah. Now, like this. There's a sefer called Mikrei Kodesh. Mikrei Kodesh is written by Ravzi Pesach Frank. He was a big rav in the turn of the 19th century in Yerushalayim. And he wrote uh, a sefer which goes through the different holidays and talks about the different halachas which come up in each holiday in, in depth. He writes here, in uh, Source 6 I have it, in the Hare Kodesh, Hare Kodesh is one of the footnotes of the book. He writes, Pashat she'in kavanas aran. It's obvious that the intent of the Ran wasn't Loma to say that he's obligated to do both from the letter of the law. And we don't say the principle when you're able to do both of them without any extra effort, the principle of doesn't apply. Rather, for sure, even when he can do both of them with no extra effort, he's for sure exempt. 
Right? But when it comes to doing both mitzvahs, it's not a bad thing to do extra mitzvahs. And that's what he wants to go ahead and prove from the fact this Pasuk, the Pasuk of Mishnah, he says, to do a good thing is not called bad. The fact that the Ran elected to bring the source, the, the concept of doing both mitzvahs, and you're able to from that, per, from that verse, he wants to say is a proof that it's optional but not obligatory. That really, from the according to the strict letter of the law, you wouldn't have to sleep in the sukkah. He also wants to make a precise reading in the Ramah, in Simon Amir Ches, that the Ramah, when he says this halacha, says, He says, if you're able to do both of them without any extra effort, a person should do both of them. Now he doesn't say, the Ramah doesn't say, you're obligated to do both. Rather he says, you should do both of them. So he wants to make a precise reading that the fact that the Ramah didn't himself say you're obligated to do so, rather that a person just should, he also wants to say that's a proof that the Ramah understood the Ran, that it's not obligatory to do both of them, but rather it's just optional. It's a nice thing to do. Now, there is a different opinion here. I didn't bring it to you in the beginning of when I quoted the Bir Halacha, but the very end of the Bir Halacha, and that same Bir Halacha that we talk, discussed before when de, de, describing this concept in the Ramah of having to do both mitzvahs if you're able to, the Mishnah wants to say that it's actually obligatory, that a person has to. If they're able to do both, then the Ran would say you're obligated to do both if there's no extra effort. So that means that we have two, we have a machlokas here. We have the stance of the Ran, and there's a dispute here between Otsui Pesach Frank and the Mishnah Berurah, what happens in a circumstance, according to the Ran, where a person can fulfill two mitzvahs with no extra effort, are they obligated to do so? Or is it just a nice thing? So I'll tell you my personal opinion on the matter. It's hard to you know. There's two different, uh, two huge rabbanim. So it's hard to, I to go ahead and tell you what was right and wrong. But I'll tell you how I would understand it. It's very hard for me to conceptualize that according to the run, the basic stance of the run is that when there's two misses that a person has to do, and he's involved in one currently, even if he, could, if he could perform both of them at the end of the day, nonetheless, he's going to ha- go ahead and be exempt from the second one. So if that's true, that we don't take into account the ability that in the end of the day you're going to fulfill both of them, that means that we don't care if you're going to have a fulfillment of a mitzvah or not. What do we care about? That you're currently involved in one mitzvah. So why would that make a difference in regards to the exemption, whether I could do simultaneously or not, at the end of the day, your involvement in the mitzvah is creating the exemption. So logically, it's very hard for me to understand why, how, to, how to explain that, that dichotomy, that the performance of a mitzvah creates an exemption unless you can actually go ahead and perform two mitzvahs at once. It seems like it's only an exemption when you can only be focused on one, Maybe, maybe that's true. It's hard for me to hear that in logic and Swara. Secondly, there's other times that we see that Rishonim use this pasuk of Mios Tova Tikra as a basis to say something's optional as opposed to obligatory. The example that comes to my mind, first and foremost, is in regards to this uh, machlokas in the Gemara in Psachim, on Daf Kuf Ches Aleph, 
The Gemara there has a discussion. What we know there's four kosas. A person has to drink four cups of wine on the Seder. And the Gemara has a discussion here. The, the fact that you have to drink four kosas, everyone agrees with. The discussion is that we have a mitzvah to lean while we're drinking the cups. Now the Gemara knows that we have to lean for sure for two of the cups. But the Gemara has a doubt whether or not we have a mitzvah to lean on the first two cups or the last two cups. So the Gemara says, inasmuch as we have a doubt, we don't know what's the first two or the last two. So then we just do all four of them, and that's why we drink and lean on all four cups of the wine on the Elisader. Now the Rishonim ask here, the mitzvah of drinking four cups of wine is only rabbinic. So when we have a suffix, there's a precedent, there's a, pr- a principle, that if we have a suffix on what the halacha is, whether I have an obligation on a mitzvah de Rabbanan, so I'm able to be lenient when it comes to a mitzvah de Rabbanan, a suffix de Rabbanan the kula. Where it comes to a mitzvah de Raisa, we're more stringent when the Torah obligates something, and therefore we say suffix de Raisa the you have to be stringent. But on a mitzvah de Rabbanan, we have a doubt. So therefore, we are able to be lenient and say we're exempt from the mitzvah. So the Rishonim here ask, how come we have to lean for any of the cups of Dalet Kosos? It really should be, we should implement the, the principle of Suffolk Darabon and the Kula. That it's a doubt on a mitzvah Darabon and therefore you should be exempt. And so how would that be manifest? The first cup comes, do I have to lean for this cup? Unclear. There's two different opinions in the Gemara. We don't know which one is true. So there, we'll tell you, Suffolk Lakula, you could be lenient, you don't have to lean. The same thing with the second cup, the same thing with the third, and the same thing with the fourth. So ask all the Rishenim, the Ran, the Maram Chalava, a different Rishonim, the, the Ritva, how come we're obligated to lean for all four of them? Really, it should just be the opposite. We should implement the principle of Suffolk Darabon Lakula and be exempt from re- for leaning for any of them. The Maram Chalava here answers this question. The Maram Chalava is one of the more obscure Rishonim. We only have his commentary, I think, on Meseches Psachim. So he says here that really... The truth is, or the matter is, you shouldn't be obligated. But, and he quotes this Pasuk, to do a good thing isn't considered bad. So even though, from according to the letter of the law, the strict letter of the law, you wouldn't be obligated. So nonetheless, it's a nice thing to go ahead and do it if you're able to. It doesn't take any extra effort. So that being said, we find this manifest already in the Rishonim, this concept of doing a good thing, even though you don't have an obligation. And they use this pasuk that they ran by in, in Masech HaSukkah, quoting as the source for doing a mitzvah when there's no extra effort. I would assume that it's just a nice thing, like Ritzi Pesach Frank, and not an obligation like the Mishnah Berurah. Now there's one more point I want to bring out, which also makes me hesitant in regards to the actual halacha like the Mishnah Berurah, is that the Mishnah Berurah says, in regards to the stance of the Shulchan Aruch, that a person, a shliach mitzvah, is exempt from the sukkah, that we saw in Sifkat Namad Vav, the Mishabura says, even when they have a sukkah built in front of them. That means that the Mishabura said clearly that even if a sukkah is built in front of you, nonetheless you have an exemption. Now, the only way we understood that is based off the stance of the Ran. And yet, the Mishabura later on, earlier on, I'm sorry, in Simon Namad Ches, says that according to the Ran, if there's a sukkah built in front of you, so then, you would have to sleep in it. It's a, it would be an obligation to sleep in it. So the Mishnah Brura himself is contradictory. In one place, the Mishnah Brura says, according to the stance of the Ran, 
you wouldn't have an obligation to sleep in the sukkah. You'd be exempt, even if the sukkah is already built in front of you. Whereas according to the Mishnah Brura and Simon Ches, you would have an obligation. So the fact that the Mishnah Brura himself is self-contradictory, as well as the fact that we find other circumstances that the Rishonim use this language of Mios Tova Yikra as a basis to explain that doing an extra mitzvah is only a nice thing, but it's not obligatory. And that leads me to believe that really we can be lenient here, and if you have two mitzvahs in front of you, you wouldn't have to do it. So let's make a recap. The halacha lamaisa, we're proving, both according to the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah, is like the Ran, that you're only obligated to do one mitzvah, and you're exempt from the second mitzvah, even if at the end of the day you could accomplish both. That being said, what happens if you could do a second mitzvah with no extra effort? We would assume the halacha is that if you could do a, the, both mitzvahs with no extra effort, so even though you're exempt, it's a nice thing to do it. So you don't obligate it, but it's a nice thing. So if we, let's say this question. A person is traveling to visit his rabbi during Chalamoid. Right? To be Pnei Rabo is a mitzvah. So it's a long trip. He's sleeping overnight on the way, and he's staying as a guest at his, at his friend's house. The friend offers him a guest room, or he could stay in the, in the sukkah, assuming that the sukkah is just as comfortable, he's going to get just as good as night's sleep. Does he have to sleep in the sunroom, or could he stay in the guest room? So according to us, this is a case where it's Efsha Lekayim Shneim. He could do both, with no extra effort. So now like this. After the Kaim Shnehem, with a machlokis between Tosis and the Ran, but we say the halacha is like the Ran. So if that's true, after the Kaim Shnehem, he would be exempt. He doesn't have to sleep in the sukkah. Aye, but maybe this is different because there's no extra effort needed. The answer is, the letter of the law, even when there's no extra effort needed, he's still going to be exempt from sleeping in the sukkah. There is a caveat that it's a nice thing. If he's able to do it, it's a nice thing to sleep in the sukkah. But he doesn't have to. So we would tell this guy it's a nice thing to sleep in the sukkah. But he's not obligated according to the letter of the law. That's what would come out. All right. Hope uh, if you have any questions, please uh, feel free to ask. If not, we're going to move on in the Gemara starting next week.